This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. Nationally, inpatient right now is a little over 200,000 surgeries nationwide. Outpatient is around 60,000 surgeries nationwide. Outpatient is a small segment of overall bariatric surgeries, but actually outpatient bariatric surgery is increasing about 15% over the decade. And there's going to be increased competition due to new pathways of weight loss, and that will push some of these bariatric surgeries into an outpatient setting. Hello, and welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Tori Ritchie. I'm really excited about today's topic. It has been in the news, fresh off the press, obesity and weight management drugs. Today, I'm joined by two of our experts, Justin Cassidy and Emily Smith, who both lead our medicine service line as well as thought leadership for our academic medical centers. Justin, Emily, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Tori. Thanks, Tori. Let's jump right in and focus first on the forecast. When I think about the obesity forecast projections in the 2023 forecast compared to previous years, 2022-2021, we've changed our narrative rather significantly. Emily, can you walk listeners through how we're approaching this service line different? Thanks, Tori. In the past, bariatric surgery was growing quite explosively due to epidemiological factors. About 40% of adults are overweight. About 9% of adults are severely obese. Due to these epidemiological factors, former forecasts had bariatric surgery growing in the 40s, the 50s, in the latter half of the decade. But for this year, due to new innovations, anti-obesity medications, there are new options for patients to lose weight that are less invasive than surgical options. Therefore, our inpatient bariatric surgery forecast is now declining due to innovation and technology over the next decade at negative 10% nationally. And outpatient obesity visits for anti anti-obesity medication visits are growing exponentially at over 400% nationwide. It's really interesting. It's not just that overall decline, it's how we get there that matters. And think about the next five years. What does the forecast look there? There actually is a bump up in growth over the next five years. And this is because anti-obesity medications, while they're gaining some traction in social circles, social media, ad campaigns, there are still caveats to these medications. The fact that you have to be on them chronically. Additionally, these medications are expensive and there's not a lot of payer buy-in right now. And so while those medications are still going through these trial and error processes, bariatric surgery is still going to continue to grow. It's once these medications hit the ground running and who knows what's going to be coming down the pike. We've seen so many medications start to become FDA approved for both diabetes and weight loss. And who knows what's next? I want to double down, though, on that short term. It's a little bit of a bump. It's not nearly as robust as we had been projecting. And in addition to those epidemiological factors you described, we had also seen peer softening for bariatric surgery over the last decade. About 50% of commercial pay plans are covering for bariatric surgery. It used to be considered a cosmetic procedure. We just celebrated the 10-year anniversary of obesity officially being declared a disease by the AMA, surprisingly enough. Payers have softened their stance. And really, our hospital-based clients have succeeded in surgical excellence and quality. Justin, when I think about previous versions of the forecast, when we talked about bariatric surgery, we largely thought of that as being an inpatient-based surgical procedure. Has that changed now that providers have a better grasp on how to provide this service in a safer environment, how to expand the access to capture additional patient populations? Totally depends on the market. Some markets we have seen a hyper competitiveness that leads to ASCs and an increased push outpatient. 
what we're seeing with the forecast potentially being more or less flat, even with this sort of bump up and bump down, that's going to lead to increased competition within the market. That push to differentiate is going to catalyze that outpatient shuffle and even inpatient outpatient shift for this procedure. When we look at the outpatient bariatric surgery forecast, what does that one look like? Nationally, inpatient right now is a little over 200,000 surgeries nationwide. Outpatient is around 60,000 surgeries nationwide. Outpatient is a small segment of overall bariatric surgeries, but actually outpatient bariatric surgery is increasing about 15% over the decade. And there's going to be increased competition due to new pathways of weight loss. And that will push some of these bariatric surgeries into an outpatient setting. And bariatric surgery is getting safer and safer every year. However, this patient population can have multiple comorbidities and need to remain in that inpatient setting. There probably won't be a total shift outpatient in bariatric surgery. Emily, in that comment of the surgery is getting safer and safer to perform every year, is there the thought that perhaps these anti-obesity medications can help improve safety? If you're able to provide an individual that is in a substantially larger body and perhaps bariatric surgery was not previously safe for them, could you put them on one of these anti-obesity medications so that they drop a certain percentage of their body weight, then go in to safely receive bariatric surgery, thus opening the surgical procedure itself to a new pocket of patients. Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing combinations of both medical and surgical weight loss. We're seeing patients start off with the medical version of weight loss, so starting off on an anti-obesity medication, losing weight, and then having the surgery. Conversely, we're seeing patients have the surgery and then go on medications in order to lose weight. There are combinations of both medical and surgical weight loss options for patients. It's not so much an either-or, it's a yes-and the supplementation of clinical care pathways. And we think that this will likely be the case for other types of surgical procedures, orthopedic surgery, for instance. We might see a bit of perioperative surgical management here that incorporates anti-obesity medicines that get some patients off the bench and qualifies them for surgeries that may not have qualified for because of heavier body size. What are some of the other strategic implications of our bariatric surgical and an obesity forecast this year? We've hit a bit on increased competition, but what are some of the other factors that we need to be thinking about? One that's really important is the possibility of a payer mix shift. What makes bariatric surgery so lucrative is the high percentage of commercial payers. About 70% of bariatric surgeries are done with patients that have commercial insurance. Now that more and more commercial insurance companies are offering to pay for anti-obesity medications, that takes a slice out of the bariatric surgery pie. It's removing commercial patients from that surgical pool. Conversely, if you see patients on Medicaid, if your state covers anti-obesity medications for Medicaid populations, and some states are starting to dabble in this, most are not right now, but it's really a state-by-state basis. More Medicaid patients might go the anti-obesity medication route rather than the surgical route. It really just depends on what's going on in your state, what's the commercial landscape, and what do patients prefer. It matters a lot. It really tacit to this argument. We probably should have said it from the onset. Bariatric surgery is incredibly lucrative. Is that reimbursement, if you don't have it, will you be able to cross-subsidize other types of services within the hospital? That matters a lot. This is an area where we've seen a lot of programmatic growth, a lot of investment in those bariatric surgery programs. And if they're not necessarily going to be as lucrative, that could be a significant hit to our client's bottom line and perhaps warrant a check in that programmatic development. And then number two is we've seen general surgeons increasingly take on bariatric surgery because of that revenue generating potential. If that growth is no longer guaranteed. There's an interesting strategic question. What will general surgeons do? Will they have an increased focus on other surgical procedures like wound care that are really essential for the community? Or will we see them go to plastics or other types of areas? 
this opens up a really interesting discussion on just improved care management, because that's what this is. These anti-obesity medications are essentially another tool in the arsenal of ways to help manage the populations of those experiencing obesity and some of the other comorbidities that go along with that. I'm curious in your conversations with members, what are you advising them in terms of future-proofing, making sure that they have the access points open, that they have the resources available to these populations to prevent the continued exacerbation of their comorbidities as well as weight management? It's a good point, Tori. When you say it's a tool, it totally is a tool. But the way that these anti-obesity medications work is they suppress hunger, they suppress cravings. And so it makes the patient not want to eat. But when you go off of those medications, the hunger comes back, the cravings come back, and many patients gain all of the weight back. What are our health systems doing in addition to prescribing a patient anti-obesity medications that will help them sustain weight loss or help them keep the weight off after they're off the medication? That's implementing things like behavioral health and nutrition and physical coaching and other ancillary services to really focus on the whole health of the patient rather than just focusing on prescribing a medication. We've been suggesting to members for years, it's not so much the what, but the how that services are rendered. Folks that are experiencing heavier bodies face a significant amount of social stigma. And programs that have that culturally conscious approach is really essential for patients to remain in that program throughout the 69 months often that preclude the surgical procedure itself. That and a savvy social media presence can work wonders. Having patients at all stages of the journey highlight their journey via social media has been incredibly impactful for those patients that are starting to see a version of their future selves that may be experiencing better health, participating in athletic activities, having healthy eating exercises, and so on. Painting a picture of their more optimistic future. And this is to compete with the anti-obesity medicines, which are also presenting that in addition to this almost celebrity status of a cosmetic pharmaceutical. Emily, I'd like to go back to something that you said previously about the payer mix shift. What is required typically for a payer to reimburse either for bariatric surgery or for sign-off for these anti-obesity medications? Is there any status that these patients need to have in order to ensure that they are able to obtain reimbursement? Currently, just to qualify for an anti-obesity medication, the patient has to have a BMI of 30 or higher or a BMI of 27 or higher with multiple comorbidities related to obesity. That's a little bit lower of a threshold than the qualifications for bariatric surgery. Bariatric surgery is a BMI of higher than 35 or a BMI of 30 or higher with multiple comorbidities related to obesity. To qualify for reimbursement is a bit of a different story. What we have seen is patients that have multiple comorbidities, specifically type 2 diabetes, it's much easier for patients to receive coverage for these medications. I had someone in my life who was seeking to be prescribed an anti-obesity medication. And the insurance company came back and said, it's going to be $900 a month for this medication. So my loved one goes back to the PCP, says, what can we do to make this more affordable? The PCP said, let's do some tests to see if you have any comorbidities related to obesity. And my loved one finds out that they have type 2 diabetes. So they were undiagnosed. Millions of Americans are undiagnosed with type 2 diabetes, about 9 million. There are many Americans that have type 2 diabetes, don't know they have type 2 diabetes. So after that diagnosis of diabetes, the insurance company said, okay, this anti-obesity medication is now $25 a month. That's huge. 
I think this also comes from the change of standards of care from the American Diabetes Association. Late last year, the American Diabetes Association made the change that first-line treatment for type 2 diabetes now included GLP-1 medications, like popular anti-obesity medications. And so therefore, with the diagnosis of diabetes... Just think about that. That's crazy because in the past it was really metformin, frontline, super cheap, very effective medication. Not quite as effective, of course, at weight loss as these new highly effective anti-obesity medicines, including semaglutide, which the ADA now says this can be prescribed as a first-line medication for type 2 diabetes. Ground shifting. Where my mind immediately goes is your loved one would not have received that type 2 diabetes diagnosis until something happened later in life where that condition became a little bit difficult for them to cope with and they had to go through figuring out what exactly was going on. What do we think the size of the population is that's going to come in for screening in order to figure out how we can cut down the cost of these types of medications to then learn that they do have a type 2 diabetes diagnosis or a hypertension diagnosis or any other other number of comorbidities. Have you all started thinking through perhaps how to size that population? Thinking about that 9.5 million Americans that have type 2 diabetes and don't know it, that's really important. It's about a little bit over 30 million Americans in total have type 2 diabetes. And so this is a big piece of that pie. And it's that initial engagement that's really necessary in order to receive that diagnosis. So say screenings, the blood tests that we would receive during a part of a normal primary care appointment. So it's more a primary care engagement or disengagement story. So it's certainly a lot of potential here for growth. Payers, you know, in general, there's been a kind of kick the can to Medicare sort of strategy. And so what we had been seeing is many patients incidentally diagnosed with type 2 diabetes right at age 65. And it's not that they weren't experiencing signs or symptoms before, it was just that they weren't overt. With the advent of Medicare Advantage plans, that strong incentives for primary care appointment and blood work at age 65 is why we're seeing that big jump up. I hate to sound like a broken record because I feel like this has just been such my burning platform for 2023, but it really does all boil down to improved care management. How do you ensure that you are proactively treating patients? How do you ensure that they are engaged, that they are accessing the preventative services that they need in order to prevent that acute exacerbation? When we think about the capacity crunch that so many organizations are facing across the entire continuum of care, this is a perfect example of how you can use a new innovation or medical development to re-engage some of those patients who perhaps might otherwise not be asking the types of questions that, that they need to be in order to be managing their conditions. Tori, that's a great point. And one that we're thinking about now in terms of collateral impact to the forecast. You know, think about hepatology, you know, fatty liver disease, for instance. We're already hearing of off-label use of anti-obesity medicines to treat this disorder that currently has no medication available. That will probably be changing shortly as we see the success from these off-label attempts and a sort of furthering of clinical trials in that space. Emily, I know there's a whole series, though, of collateral impact. Want to weigh in on a couple others? Absolutely. The first one that comes to mind for me are the main side effects associated with anti-obesity medications, pancreatitis, and gallbladder complications. Perhaps there's going to be an increase of pancreatic care or gallbladder care as a result of side effects of these medications. Additionally, since more and more people are losing weight, either from medical weight loss or surgical weight loss, because people are losing weight, they might desire to have post-weight loss surgery, so removal of excess skin. So connecting those patients from weight loss programs to plastic surgery programs is a great way to feed plastic surgery growth. 
Emily, we've talked a bit about the payer mix shift as well as access opening up to new payer classes as payers start to get smart on on really how to deploy the anti-obesity medications and bariatric surgery to those who need it most. How do we ensure equitable access of these services and of these medications? Obesity is a cornerstone of health inequity, and it affects marginalized communities and communities of color at higher rates. It's getting back to your community footprint. How are you engaging with the community? Are you meeting people where they are in different community organizations? We've seen people go to barber shops. We've seen people go to farmers markets. We've seen people partner with local YMCAs, meeting the people in their community to provide care and to provide preventative care and proactive care. That ties back nicely to what we were talking about just a moment ago with really re-engaging those individuals for those primary care services. It's closing the gap and missing out on those patient volumes altogether because there's just a huge host of the population that is not engaged, that are not receiving those preventative services that we so often talk about. It's really about being more political than you may be comfortable with as a healthcare provider, making the case to state government that Medicaid patients really would benefit from the service. It would be an overall cost savings as you think about the longitudinal patient journey, the alleviation of cardiovascular risk from losing weight. We have seen this successful in some states. Emily, you mentioned that a couple have softened their stance. We know Wisconsin allows for anti-obesity medicines in Connecticut as of July 1st, we'll be reimbursing for state Medicaid populations. This is probably the most important to ensure access because right now, unfortunately, it is a disparity. It is an example of health inequity. How can digital health be deployed to also improve access here to also ensure that folks have those access points that they need? Well, we've seen a whole host of digital platforms popping up in the past year, specifically related to prescribing anti-obesity medications. We've seen very popular organizations and companies that have gotten into this game. It's a consumer-friendly model. You can be prescribed an anti-obesity medication and these virtual platforms also have ancillary services like behavioral health and nutrition. So very consumer-friendly. You can lose weight in your home And really, this is a big source of competition for health systems, especially for those lower categories of VMIs. You're talking about the direct-to-consumer options, which has been proliferating. There have been these networks of shadow docs that if so long as you you fill out an online survey, there's no contraindication, there'll be a prescribing of a drug. There's also the sort of more gray market, if you will, of let's just say research formulations of semaglutide that are really resuspended by the patient and injected themselves outside of the regulated pharmacy that we were used to. But Tori, perhaps the most interesting on the digital front is not so much the D to C, but it's the B to B types of digital platforms. And so here we've seen a terrific pivot of some of these very popular diabetes prevention programs like Omada Health, essentially forming an alliance and saying, we're going to sell to employer sell pay plans that are very nervous about expanding coverage to an entire new class of medication that a significant number of their employees will be taking that is extremely high cost in perpetuity, which basically read this another way, the employer will be on the hook for a lot more pharmacy spend than it had been in prior years because of the increased demand for these outpatient, highly effective once a week subcutaneous injection medicines. We're also seeing from some employers that they're getting, there are some patients that their PBM is sending them a letter and sort of saying, hey, if you don't lose weight on these medicines, we're going to be documenting that and then you will no longer be able to secure reimbursement. And this is important because not every patient that experiences obesity is experiencing the same type of obesity. Yeah, it makes me think of precision medicine 
tests that are saliva tests to help determine what type of obesity you have. I believe it's called the hungry stomach is a type of obesity where your stomach doesn't necessarily know that it's full when it's eating. Possibly a play is to have a patient take this test to learn what type of obesity they have before prescribing any anti-obesity medications to ensure that the anti-obesity medications will be effective. They're really just a catalyst for behavioral change. And so some forms of obesity are strictly speaking genetic. Patients will respond to these anti-obesity medicines whatsoever. It would be best to know that beforehand, perhaps with a companion diagnostic type of genetic test to be able to rule out some of these genetic forms of obesity. It could be significant cost savings for employers. The other is certain gene mutations. They've now branded to the condition that's a fact physiologically of those genetic variants that allow us to feel hunger in different ways. As a result, then I imagine there are different services that should be deployed depending on what category a patient falls into. Could you expand a bit on what those services are and what those categories might be? Qualifications in order to obtain an anti-obesity medication are BMI of 30 or higher or 27 and higher with comorbid conditions. So those would likely be the best candidates for a medical weight loss. They wouldn't qualify for something like a surgical weight loss. But then one area that's also interesting is that actually normal BMI. So a BMI under 27, right, Justin? We've been seeing this, especially with the virtual providers of it's almost celebrity status. Like celebrities are going on these medications, even though they're normal body sizes and they're losing even more weight. It's important to just remind our audience that FDA approvals do not account for these folks, yet they are still seeking care. And so having a strategy to gently turn folks down is essential. And then conversely, the higher BMIs, 35 and up, are better candidates for surgical weight loss programs. Those really high BMIs, like BMI 50 or higher, might be good candidates for combination programs, starting with medical and then going into surgical. Justin and I call this the off the bench theory. Justin, Emily, as you look to the future, and I mean long term, so five, 10 years plus, what do you see on the horizon for this patient population and for the services that are made available to them? Number one, the accelerated competition of medicines that are coming down the FDA pipeline. There's about to be newly approved medicines that patients lose 23% of their body weight if they take them. And that really does rival traditional bariatric surgery. That's what everyone's looking at. And that's what our forecast is projecting over the next decade. But because of this, there's going to be more and more medicines that are potentially more and more effective that have fewer and fewer side effects. And that landscape will also, with increased competition, hopefully lower the price point such that we'll see more equitable solutions for obesity, which is a pretty optimistic thing. In that case, we might start to see significant dampening effects on incident ESRD and dialysis treatment and the like. Yeah, I think I tend to be a little bit more optimistic with this and curbing some chronic conditions. I think hypertension, diabetes. On a more pessimistic point, I wonder what this will do to health equity if certain states or if there is not widespread adoption of coverage for anti-obesity medication. Will this become a scenario of the people who are able to afford anti-obesity medications versus the people who aren't? Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you both for joining. For members listening today, highly encourage you to go to our website, intel.sg2.com, to check out a recent post that was written on this topic. The post is titled, From Childhood to Adulthood, Obesity Captures the Spotlight in This Year's Impact of Change Forecast. Thank you, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us, and or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at SG2Healthcare. And if you want to talk more about innovative healthcare strategies, you can always email me at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Finally, SG2 is a Vizient company, and there are a bunch of Vizient podcasts that you might like. You can find them at Vizient backslash podcasts. Have a great day.